Norris. Chuck Norris, man of action. Chuck Norris stars in Chuck Norris Karate Commandos. Chuck Norris, he's got nerves of steel and strength to match. Chuck Norris with his team, Pepper. It's too dangerous, Chuck. What? Too much. Too much. Kimo, the Samurai Warrior. Reed, Chuck's teenage apprentice. Abe, a sumo champion. With Chuck Norris, they battle the sinister forces of the Claw and the ruthless Super Ninja. I'll finish Norris! Chuck Norris stars in Chuck Norris Karate Commandos. Hello. Uh, sir, we'll talk about something for one minute. Yeah, whatever. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. Uh, oh. Oh. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you ever seen Stranger Things? Have you watched that? You know, some people try to recommend that to me, but I have not actually watched it. Oh, my my big yeah. holdup is revolves around kind of like the Goonies, a bunch of kids. So I'm like, you know, I, I didn't like being a kid. I was never a fan of kids, even when I was one. So mm-hmm. I couldn't really get myself to watch it. But everybody recommends it. I, I really recommend it. I watched it cold for a season. You know, because I like when Netflix puts up a season. It's like the whole thing's right there. Mm-hmm. And I just went through the whole thing. I was like, wow, this is good. And I hate kids. Yeah, thank you. So that's my problem. And even though I hate kids, I was like, I can, I can see, sort of, you know. And it takes so many twists and turns. And it delves into a lot of, there's some perverted stuff going on there. And... <laughs> Yeah, well, I can't. Since you didn't see, it, I really can't say. But there's just some things, and then the second season that they did, like two years later, just totally went on a different tangent and actually added a character who I liked, and they wound up killing off the character at the end. I was like, "Well, that's fucked up." And so this one's a couple of years later. It's, I tell you, the score. These guys, whoever they are, they're brothers. They did a good job, and the score is very like Carpenter-ish. And it's actually, it feels like if John Carpenter had done one of these things for Netflix or Amazon or whatever, or, or HBO or whatever, if he'd done a show, it's it's very, got that feel. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Right. Uh, July 4th will be season three, but seasons one and two are currently there. Yeah, I, I'd say it's the kind of thing if by the end of the first episode, you're not quite sure, and by the second one, you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah, and it's... It kind of got me. You know, it's... You know, again... Since you hate kids, too, and you dug this, I'm going to have to give it a shot now. Because that's my yeah. big, like, eh, I don't want to watch that. <laughs> but, you know, you got... You, first of all, you got these these three kids. They, like, you know, they get together. They're all outcasts. So that's kind of got me, in a way. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, so they're outcasts. You know, and you got ones, ones, like, really got teeth. He's got some kind of, like, orthodontal thing going on, and... You know, oh, like uh, the fake Freddie Mercury and the... <laughs> whatever mm. fuck that movie was, Bringing in Rhapsody? No, like his teeth are not coming in or something. <laughs> but, they're, they're, you know, but they're all into gaming. Right. You know, so they, they play this game, and then there's, let's say, a young lady who shows up, and their little small world and their fantasy thing suddenly becomes a terrifying thing. And it's not like the game... It's not like... That movie, The Gate. It's not like that at all. Right. It's, it's it's it involves interdimensional travel, creatures <laughs> from the id, psych experiments, and psi exper- experiments, government experiments. It's so 
fucking crazy. It loses its mind sometimes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and then there, there, you know, there's a little, you know, swinging jocks. You know, because I think they're, you know, the first season was when was when does that take place? I don't remember. Late seventies, early eighties. So there's you know, swinging jocks, but it's funny. They do really interesting things with the characters by season two. Like swinging jock guys now cool dude you know he's like they do interesting things so yeah i recommend it i'd say you know don't make well let me force you but you know <laughs> but yeah all, all right. right check this out The weird scene is set to go, man. You're essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, you simply aren't tough enough for this show. The films of Chuck Norris. On the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. Boy, that must have been one hell of a refill. Well, it took a leak, too, you know, while I was at it. <laughs> Do you remember that comic book character, the wizard, the old man in the yellow outfit? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was actually going to tell you that, too. I was like, yeah, might as well do that while I'm waiting. <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> what was that, uh, Landisfarne? Have a little wet on the wall. <laughs> well, I said, well, I said to myself, well, as long as I'm here... <laughs> Fogging the time is all mine. <laughs> anyway, all right. So uh, <laughs> on that note, I guess we can get started with Chuck Norris <laughs> uh -huh. with his yellow hair. Uh, so, so good evening and welcome to the fourth episode of the eighth season of Weird Seasons at the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host. Lewis Paul, the maven of sleeves and virago of vituperiveness, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. Tune in, turn on, take a step outside the mainstream, as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television, right here on Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine. So tonight, from humble roots in the Dust Bowl of Oklahoma, Carlos Ray Norris took his post-Korean war era stint in the Air Force and turned it into what became a black belt in three separate disciplines, Korean karate, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and judo, and international karate championships where he met and trained further with the man, the myth, Bruce Lee. Tapped for Lee by his way, which became in this country the return of the dragon, he shortly found his way into film, starting with the trucker and CB craze exploiter Breaker Breaker, and parlaying his success into a chain of strikingly unique and philosophical karate-based action films. Good guys wear black, a force of one, an eye for an eye, and force vengeance. He single-handedly kicked off the international ninja craze of the 80s with the Octagon and crossed over into the contemporaneous mania for slasher films with a strikingly bizarre silent rage before mm. signing up with the legendary Canon Films where he shifted into a strange jingoistic run of over-the-top oddities like Lone Wolf McQuaid, the missing in action films in the Delta Force series, not to mention the deliriously hilarious action paranoia flick Invasion USA. Peppering this run with a few attempts at a broader acceptance, 
Cop Pot Boiler, Code of Silence, Likeable Indiana Jones Knockoff Firewalker, and Minimalist Silent Rage Throwback Hero in the Terror. Even the weird cartoon iteration, Chuck Norris's Karate Commandos. Norris would give himself over to the televised cheese of Walker, Texas Ranger, and a decade or more of hucking home fitness equipment before turning into a tongue-in-cheek, all-powerful meme in the internet age. So join us tonight as we contemplate the uniquely introspective and philosophic early films and the over-the-top right-wing cheese that came hereafter of the man who can apparently do anything, the inimitable Chuck Norris. You're simply not tough enough for this show, the films of Chuck Norris. So, if you think his career trajectory sounds bad from the intro, consider this. He's openly stood behind that nutjob Netanyahu. He's endorsed the likes of Ron Paul, Mitt Romney, Crazy Mike Huckabee, Child Molesting Roy Moore, and worst of all, Donald fucking Sighile Trump. I mean, I used to have posters of this guy on my wall. I looked up to him as a kid almost as much as I did Bruce Lee and later Arnold Schwarzenegger. What the fuck happened? Did he get dropped in his head in the mid-80s or something? Uh, these days, he's even endorsing fucking guns, apparently. He's just recently signed on to be the spokesman for Glock, if you can believe that. But while we'll obviously be touching on stuff right up to the present day, we're not really here tonight to stand behind his questionable political beliefs, but to celebrate the films of his heyday, from his battle with Bruce and Return of the Dragon through his canon films, as spotty as some of the later ones were. I mean, hell, Invasion USA, that's one of his most entertaining films, as is the first missing in action. So it's not like there's a clear divider where you give up on the guy, at least until he goes into television. Yeah, uh, actually, not about his politics, but Chuck also, you know, he was a champion uh, in all these uh, in all these fields of martial arts, and so he opened up schools. And it's funny because I'm seeing people he taught were uh, karate at least, where Steve McQueen, Bob Barker of all people, <laughs> and probably James Coburn, who were also students. McQueen and Coburn were also students of Bruce Lee, just like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah, and so uh, really, very interest, really interesting to me very interesting is that you know probably when they couldn't be with lee they were probably studying with chuck and before chuck's way of the dragon he did turn up on the set of the wrecking crew that last dean martin Mattel movie which yes. we covered back in the past and actually which is being covered in tarantino's once upon a time in hollywood which is coming out where bruce lee is on the set and there's a guy that's i think his name is max mock or something he looked like he's really channeling bruce lee probably the most successful of all time so far it looks like and i'm interesting if somebody's playing the young chuck in this as well but be that as it may that was a walk-on and it was probably just you know this white guy who knew karate who's in the in the picture getting his ass kicked i also think there was something prior to way of the dragon it might have been i think he's all i also saw him in that James Garner movie where Bruce appeared. It was a it was like a hard ass kinda noirish thing. Maybe nineteen seventy two. Uh or nineteen seventy uh I forgot the name of that James Garner picture. Marlowe. That's right, Marlowe. And Bruce Lee shows up and he shows him a bunch of stuff and then he falls out the fucking window. But I think James <laughs> James Coburn not James Coburn, uh Chuck Norris was in that film as well in a small part I, I mentioned James Coburn because he's on my mind because Coburn and Norris and Bruce Lee and Steve McQueen were all in this kind of bubble mm -hmm. you know I think I think I think the actors well-known actors at the time you know Coburn was bigger than, than McQueen at one time and then McQueen was bigger than everybody in Hollywood at one time so I think they all tried to help their martial arts teachers get a little in 
you know, mm-hmm. get a little in. And but these guys, they think they did it in a good way. They probably, you know, did a couple of good words, put a couple of good words in. You know, maybe gave them a little nudge. Maybe they gave them some acting tips. Who knows? But yes, uh, we're gonna go right into Way of the Dragon, I guess. Well, let's start way back though, because after the stint in Korea with the Air Force, where Chuck started learning that Korean style karate, obviously mm-hmm. the guy got into martial arts and started competing. Which, you know, again, we kind of touched on this. Like we mentioned, he started to grab titles and take the cover of things like Inside Kung Fu and whatever. He came to the attention of Bruce Lee, who at the time was still working his way through American TV bit parts, like you said, starring as Kato in the short-lived Green Hornet show. Speaking of which, when is somebody gonna put that one out? It's a different vibe, but it's the guys behind the Adam West Batman. It's got Bruce Lee in it. How about it? So anyway, yeah. Chuck wound up becoming yeah. one of Lee's students and friends, butting heads with people like you mentioned, big name tough guys, you know, James Coburn, Steve McQueen. He's going to wind up in film. So first up, Bruce taps him into the toughest of the international hitmen Bruce has to take on in Way of Slash Return of the Dragon. Now, I don't have a lot to say about this in terms of Chuck because it's almost entirely a non-speaking role. And in retrospect, it's obvious who the better martial artist is, but Chuck was big and believably tough, and their fight was one of the longest one-on-one battles in film until John Carpenter one-upped it and they live. If you only remember one thing about the movie, it's Chuck in that fight in the Roman arena. It really stands out. And even before that, you know, I don't believe you could find it in the usual sources for filmographs and such, but he did something called Crime in the Streets, which is a short on uh, Something Weird's image disc for the hilarious drag queen serial killer extravaganza, A Scream in the Streets, where he's teaching local cops and kids self-defense takedown. So he's, he was doing things like this. But what did you want to say about Return of the Dragon? Because there's really not much else to say in terms of Chuck. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think, did they actually shoot it in the Coliseum? They might have shot it. Yeah. They might have, they might have. Um, it's interesting, you know, because Chuck's style, Chuck's style at that time was very much bow and snake crane and where Bruce was doing Bruce. Yeah. And and it's very interesting because Chuck would he would snake crane meaning that you would point your fingers and the thumb taps your middle your middle finger so it's almost like you're going to gouge at something but then he would also ball up his fist so he would alternate so he he had a particular style that was actually all his own I think because he he's you know doing the karate and, and then the Korean styles, so Korean and Brazilian. He didn't do traditional like you know Japanese, right. Chinese. Yeah, he did. He did not do traditional. So if you watch something like Way of the Dragon in that early fight with him and Bruce, and I think Bruce is really interested in him because Chuck is like utilizing American boxing. He's he's moving his legs a little a little influence there from you know the Brazilian style. It's a very interesting thing going on there, and so yeah, it's uh, w- worth watching. Again, obviously, it, those who didn't see it, basically he's called in as a hitman. He's supposed to be the biggest and toughest yes. of the hitmen, so that's why he gets such a long battle at the end. He is like the boss battle, if you will. Well, yeah, to recap, uh, you know, Bruce, Bruce goes to Italy, of course, uh, to Rome, and uh, because the, the family has a, a Chinese restaurant. A Chinese restaurant. <laughs> And the Italians, you know, there's the Poliziteski thing there. Mm-hmm. The Italians are like moving in on the on the uh, Chinese, you know, like give us more money or we'll beat you up. And you know, Bruce kicks ass. So you know, and of course they call in your guy from America, Chuck. Yeah, so uh, what was it, that cult or something? It was kind of really you know butch manly type. Uh... Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of which, you know, Chuck had like Chuck's a hirsute guy. Oh, God. He's, he is so fucking hairy. The hair's, like, all down his back and his shoulders. I've never seen a guy that hairy. 
Yeah, yeah. For, for those those of our listeners and and fans who who like dudes, you know, if you like hairy guys, you know, watch these early Chuck Norris movies and have a jar of lube. You'll really have a good time. Yeah, you guys have not no. seen a bear like this. I mean, seriously. I mean, usually you see like guys are super hairy, and they usually it's a ball guy too. They got the hair on their back, and they got the hair in their chest, and they got hair on their arms. He's got hair on his shoulders. I'm like, I've never seen that. Is he a werewolf? Oh, yeah, yeah, he's a hairy. Well, it's me. I shave my shoulders, actually. What's wrong with you, but You know, like, like, damn, you're hairy. Yeah, I know. Uh, don't, uh, people will probably be knocking on my door soon, so probably don't want to do that. That's but, it. <laughs> you just turned on tire fetish crowd. I'm like, ooh, where's this guy at? It's like, who's hairy? I didn't know that. <laughs> Like, damn, bing, bing, or oh, my fucking messenger box will be lighting up after this one. Um. <laughs> and the funny thing is, I'm the reverse. You know, luckily, I have an Asian wife who likes guys that are like, you know, not so hairy. <laughs> are you all smooth? There's a fetish crowd for that, too, you know. <laughs> and there you go. <laughs> Except my legs. My legs are super hairy because I'm Italian. But <laughs> okay. Now, next is... So after that... <laughs> <laughs> it takes a few years, but in 1977, Chuck finally gets his own film where he's in the starring role. Unfortunately, it was Breaker Breaker. <laughs> Chuck's first starring role was really pretty weird, actually. It's more of a celebration of CB and trucker culture with a heap and help and a post-Easy Rider-style exploitation thrown in. This one came hot in the heels of Smokey and the Bandit and a year before Convoy. So you get the idea. The whole shtick's been seen a million times before and since, and from stories told and hints dropped, may have happened in some variant even within the family. I mean, the Deep South has a thing for Yankee stranded ter- territory, and there were some dire warnings and hints about corrupt cops and jails down that way, from what I gather relating to speed trap drivers or something. Who knows, but I've seen firsthand just how Southerners can sniff out visiting Northerners and know firsthand just how well they react to us. No thanks, I have zero plans to ever head down below the Mason-Dixon line again in my life, so... It's okay. Anyway, Chuck is a trucker who, after a weird homoerotic wrestle and literal roll in the hay with his little brother, who's also a trucker, by the way, gets to haul off a run of TV dinners, seriously, before running afoul of a scam detour, impoundment, and jailing, and a noted den of good old boy corruption in Texas. Unfortunate for these seedy hicks, his big brother is Chuck Norris. It's sort of a cross between the Dukes of Hazard and Walking Tall. This one's part of the whole genre of TV and film based around just what the hippies found when they traveled cross-country looking for America throughout the late 60s and early 70s. It's pretty grotty and not exactly what you'd expect from a martial arts movie, even an American one. If anything, it's more akin to Lorenzo Lamas' Renegade, crossed with Chuck's much later Walker, Texas Ranger, with diners that have a separate overcharge menu for outsiders, hanging judges who are in bed with seedy sheriffs, a whole lot of car chases and effective bar fights. Interestingly, Chuck hated this film for years and would always say it as the worst and most embarrassing of his films. So why did he go back to the well for his own TV show in the 90s taking basically the same plot? I don't know. Things get so much better for his next movie, but what tenacity he had to have to get it out there. We'll talk about that when we get there. Well, yeah, you know, you, Convoy, uh, you know, Smoking the Bandit films, this was a thing at the time. E- even TNA movies, exploitation, sexploitation. Uh, oh, trucker girls tr- and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think, Country there's, cousins. There's, there's a great one with Colleen Brennan. Um, there was. Uh, oh yes, this is something weird. This is a double feature on there. I love that one. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is in softcore and hardcore versions. Actually, I like them both. So, yo, know, God, Vanessa Del Rio did one. Truck stop women. Yo, know, it's. <laughs> oh, this, there's this, a French this, film like that too. Truck stop. <laughs> 
Yes, but this was the thing. Uh, actually, the the hardcore ones are a lot of fun too. This was the thing because this was I don't know. I guess when all things were tapped out over a period of time, they they hit this. Y'all, they hit this genre, which very lucrative for Burt Reynolds. It was like I don't know at that time his second or third career reinvention. But it it made big dime down south, you know, and y'all fucking Jackie Gleason of all people, you know. <laughs> Hell, the Bond movies tapped into this method. Yes, sure, J.D. Uh, Pepper, I love that. <laughs> they did this with two pictures. They did Living the more with pictures. Yep. And, the, and the Man with the Golden Gun. Yes, the more pictures. So, you know, it makes sense. It, well, it makes sense. It doesn't make sense. He's, he's a martial artist. But I guess they're looking at him, white, you know, very clean-cut looking, Wants to be an action guy. Let's put him in a trucker movie. Okay. <laughs> but it's not very good. It's it's hard to sit through, but yeah. it's I've seen a lot worse. That's true, next. too. So, uh, like I said, things get so much better for his next movie, but what tenacity he had to have to get it out there. Apparently, couldn't even sell a damn thing to a studio at the time. So check this out. They rented out theaters themselves and took whatever profits remained. I do remember getting terrible reviews at the time, which is the same thing that happened later with Stallone and First Blood. But I actually think Norris's early films were much better. And he had the same problem with the picture that followed. So which film are we talking about here? 1978's Good Guys Wear Black. Right. A funky 70s-style soundtrack, somewhat akin to the one used for the Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man TV series. And by the way, when is that coming out on DVD or Blue, huh? Long overdue. Kicks off this pre-First Blood, pre-Missing in Action, ode to Vietnam POWs and such. Of course, being the 70s, it's far more mature and nuanced than the sort of black-and-white propaganda that would become ubiquitous in the Reagan era, with the issue being more of the dirty pool of international power politics. I mean, they knocked James Franciscus for sacrificing American lives just for the sake of getting a Nobel Peace Prize and effectively shaking hands with the Viet Cong. Chuck's one of the Black Tigers, an elite commando troop who's ostensibly sent in to rescue some POWs, but it was actually part of some deal cut with the VC that certain influential and high-level prisoners would be released in exchange for this group being set up and taken out, the implication being by our own people. Of course, Chuck survives along with a few members of the unit, only to find themselves hunted down a few years later on domestic soil. Maybe for some people, the Vietnam War never really ended. Strangely enough, this one features the last appearances of Thurston Howell and Mr. Magoo himself, Jim Backus, and 50s film and TV star Dana Andrews, as well as relative heavy hitters like Italian exploitation regular James Franciscus, who's in things like Cat and Nine Tales, The Concord Affair, Killer Fish, and The Last Shark, and Anne Archer, who showed up in things like Green Ice, The Naked Face, Fatal Attraction, and Patriot Games thereafter. So far as I'm concerned, this is the first Chuck Norris film, and Chuck himself agrees or did for many, many years. Especially the first one that I saw in the theater with my folks. Interestingly, Chuck clearly hadn't flipped his lid into right-wing mania yet, as he holds a very anti-war stance throughout, telling his students we should never have been involved in Nam and cracking jokes about jingoism. And in the end, it's our own government that's the enemy, not anyone outside. We're still quite a ways from missing in action, tonally speaking, and about a billion miles from the likes of Invasion USA or the Delta Force films. It's more like a movie that got released on a DVD with a Rosie Greer, John Saxon, Chief Just the Glove, called Search and Destroy. It's a group of former teammates being picked off one by one, and the survivors trying to get to the bottom of it before it's their turn. I always, always liked this film. Effectively, it's his first, and it's still one of his very best. I'd actually say it's right up there with the Octagon. It's a fun movie. Uh, I don't like it as much as next one I think we're going to discuss but it's it's a good start it's low budget but yeah the, the Chuck you know here's something uh, you pointed out and I want to reiterate that his first couple of films were coming out through a really really minor 
distribution company, and he was essentially, with the assistance of friends, who could have been some of these uh, celebs we, we mentioned earlier, maybe behind the scenes, he was essentially just self-financing his pictures mm-hmm. and forewalling them and going around, and they did pretty good money back in those days. So, you know, good guys wear black, fun. Not as much fun as a force of one. So one thing you'll notice about his heyday, the quiet, cool, and introspection of these early films, where he's effectively the passive guy who gets backed into a corner until he's forced to take the fight back to the bully of the piece. It's a typical action trope, but again, it's a long ways from what came later on. Force of One was 1979. Chuck gets busy with the ubiquitous 70s model Jennifer O'Neill, who did memorable turns in Lady Ice, which we discussed there in our Donald Sutherland show. Fulci's The Psychic, which we talked about in our Fulci show. Scanners for Cronenberg. And the reincarnation of Peter Proud, which you had mentioned recently. And Superfly Ron O'Neill shows up in the cast as a grumpy cop, but it's really all about Chuck. He's a karate competition winner who gets hauled in to teach karate to the local cops, but yeah. then he gets in on chasing a drug-dealing serial killer or some shit. I don't know. I actually thought this one was pretty stupid and a bit of a leap in logic. I mean, think about it. There's a serial killer on the loose. Who better to suss things out and save the day but a high-kicking kung fu expert? Can you believe this thing was scripted by Ernest Tidyman? O'Neill isn't exactly up to snuff here. She's got this hideous Mia Farrow Rosemary's Baby slash Tyne Daly crop that falls somewhere between just had a big breakup and who needs men or just got out of the military. It's painfully hard, particularly with her running around in belly button high corduroy pants and sweater vests. This is, despite having a great poster and a reasonably gritty era appropriate vibe, by far the least of his early films, Bar Breaker Breaker. It feels like a TV cop show more than anything else. O'Neill has no love interest in that get up and do. And the others were at best serviceable, while Chuck is kind of wooden throughout. It didn't even feel like he got enough lines. So it's watchable, but it's not really up to the handful of films that proceed and follow as far as I'm concerned. But you have a different opinion, so... Yeah, I do. I I, I like this one because I was uh, flipping through, before we even thought we were going to have the show, before we discussed this, I was flipping through Amazon Prime. And I said, oh my god, they have all these old Chuck Norris things. This was a couple months ago. And I said, I'll watch this one. What the fuck? You know, I don't remember seeing it in the theater. Yeah, I've seen a lot of these in the theater, believe it or not. Shh, yeah, don't tell anybody. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it shows our age. But, hey, we're seasoned. Anyway. Uh, hey, I was I, a kid. <laughs> well, I was a kid, too. I was 19 and 79. No, I was a kid. <laughs> Fuck you. So, <laughs> I mean, I was anyway, a kid, not a teenager. It was like nine years old. Okay, whatever. So, so I, you know, I, I don't remember what I saw this one, so I'm watching it. And believe it or not, I had to go back, first 10 minutes in, right? Mm-hmm. I had to go back to the credits. Because they say, who's that woman? And she's wearing glasses, too, which is another one of my things. And I'm like, mm, okay. I can hear that. Yeah. So so <laughs> I, I had to scroll back. Oh, it's Jennifer O'Neill. Doesn't even look like Jennifer O'Neill. Holy shit. Yeah, I agree. Because she was like, she was already a Revlon model, cover girl. Mm-hmm. And she's really, I don't know, sort of like on that cusp of, nerdy naughty but she's playing a cop yeah she's playing a cop but she's playing it nerdy naughty or she's dressing nerdy naughty or butch you know like you could take a pick and and the whole thing that it's a strange movie though you know why i like this one because so you got a bunch of guys who are doing killings and the kind of killings are doing kind of brutal for the Mm -hmm. time period yep and and like they kill cops so I'm like, so how come the cops aren't calling in, like, special forces or, like, special cop fucking forces? Exactly. They go for a karate guy. I'm like, really? <laughs> they go, like, they got to go to Chuck Norris, you know, who has karate school. I like the movie because it's got, like, little 
little eye drops of darkness in it, though. Like, oh, yeah. He's got he, so he, there's there's references to a relationship he had with this woman. So he took care of the kid, you know, which actually might be his his son. He was, he's adopted and he, he's black, and so that's cool. And then the fucking kid gets killed during the movie, which is like, oh, that's kind of dark. That's when know? it gets personal because before that he's just supposed to be the karate teacher for these cops, and then all of a sudden yeah, he's and, then, and, and during the movie Chuck keeps dropping out, like I don't think I really want to help you guys. This is like out of my league. But then he cop keeps bopping back again. And then, you know, you mentioned Ron O'Neill, post-Superfly. You know, this is uh, four, four years or so after Superfly. You know, Ron O'Neill's not playing a cop. He's playing the man. But he's dirty. He's a dirty cop. Um, kind of interesting here because he's like, he's supposed to be his friend, you know. And, you know, there's some, uh, there's, it's in this movie. Yeah, it's in this movie. There's a, a little vignette of training sequences, which looks like it's real life. Because, like, so Chuck is supposed to teach his, these actors who are playing cops, right? Yeah, and it breaks the, the breaks the wall there because he's showing Jennifer O'Neill how to protect herself. Then he's showing Ron O'Neill, no relation, how to protect himself. Then he's showing these other guys who are playing cops. I, don't, I think Charles Deere Cop is in here, too, how to protect themselves. And it's funny because some of these guys keep falling on their ass. Doing hits. Oh, you see her laughing all the time. She has a big ass smile during the karate sequences. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think a lot of that's real life stuff. I think they just kept it in mm -hmm. because it's like it's fun. I like that. I like they're breaking the wall there. It's a little dark at times. It doesn't neatly tie things up. It's also a little long at ninety something minutes. You know, it could have been shorter, but it's it's an interesting picture and actually i think it did it did some box office for him leading up to the octagon yeah and i will say you mentioned about the glasses thing yeah i got that too obviously when we met Teresa russell i actually made her put hers on <laughs> take a photo with her <laughs> she's like don't show this to anybody okay don't worry about it <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about it I'll, yeah. I'll i'll look at this often in my darkened room <laughs> she's like, well, okay i guess it's all right since your wife's here too <laughs> yeah that was an that was another Appearance. I wasn't at that event. Ah, oh, jeez. I uh, know. So next up, you mentioned the Octagon, 1980. Now, strangely enough, this was actually the first film we talked about last week. We weren't sure which was which. This was the first one to introduce and kick off the ninja craze outside of Japan. But despite my memories, Shokasuki does not appear in this one. He actually did show up first in uh, Enter the Ninja, like you said last time. Right. That's right. So the film's about a guy who, as an American ninja, was raised as the half brother to an evil ninja who these days is running a terrorist ninja training camp out in the middle of nowhere. After quizzing some rate stripper about her quote using the martial arts in her routine they head back to her place to get some action of course they get a different kind of action they expect when they're attacked by ninjas luckily he has an old mercenary pal another than lee van cleef who knows a little more than he should about the whole situation eventually the guys infiltrate the camp take on guys like richard norton in the process and much fighting and many explosions ensue the film was so popular at the time, it not only kicked off an entire subgenre of film, starting with a vaguely Chuck-like Franco Nero and Enter the Ninja, and running through a number of spin-off Shokasuki Ninja films and Michael Dudikoff American Ninja films before the decade was out, among others. Van Cleef, an aging spaghetti western baddie, found himself temporarily career revitalized and cast in the hilariously goofy 18-meet Shazam knockoff, The Master, as guess what? <laughs> a ninja with a younger apprentice, the laugh-out-loud, thick-accented salami from The White Shadow, Timothy Van Patten, who always gets thrown through a window at the start of every episode. It's kind of a running joke. The one thing you'll inevitably remember about this film is Chuck whispering to himself throughout, throughout, throughout. 
which is supposed to be your gaze inside his head as the story progresses. It gives the film this weirdly philosophical, introspective feel, and while you'll probably laugh at it the first time through, it does grow on you and helps set a very odd, oneric feel to proceedings. I can tell you seeing that in the theater back when I was like, wow, this is weird. Easily the man's best film, though, like I said, Good Guys Wear Black is right up there nipping at its heels as far as I'm concerned. Are you on fucking drugs? <laughs> <laughs> The Octagon, easily his best film? Oh, what, yeah. are you crazy? No, I love this film. Go ahead. I guess you really do. I, I did it endearingly when I said that. <laughs> I love you, man. No, I do. I love you, man. I love you, man. No, just, what are you, crazy? I, I, it's funny. I forgot about that. And you just reminded me. Yes, there's all that introspective thought processes going on. And it's like narration. And it's like, and it's it's like a, they got the echo chamber thing going, yep. right? Whispered slap That's, echo, like I was yeah, doing, whispered doing, slap doing. echo. I was like, <laughs> I know they're coming, they're coming, they're coming, coming. But I must find a way, find a way, find a way, find a way. It's like so weird. Yeah. You know, it's. I thought this was a step. Personally, is it my turn? Yeah. I thought it was a step. <laughs> I thought it was a step back really? from <laughs> from Force One because now it had a great poster and had a really good trailer. But I was disappointed when I saw it in the theater because really? I'm like, wow, this is even lower budget than usual. And I don't know. It's just, I, yo, maybe the lower budget just kind of, hey, who's knocking lower budget movies? Look at the exactly, shit we right. <laughs> But it's just, I just felt like after a couple of pictures, like, okay, we're going, getting, we're getting to a point here. And then like, huge step back. I thought it was okay. But you loved it, which is good because... We just disagree. <laughs> I will say that if you're talking about posters, the greatest poster you ever did was for A Force of One. That thing is awesome. You look at that, you think you're looking at a magic ritual or something, which in effect it is. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Amazing and, and you know what? That's that's a curiosity thing. What's going on with that? Yeah, like I said, he was very introspective and philosophical. Let's leave it at that. Again, I don't know what happened. He had so much promise and potential in these early films, as much as people knocked them, and it really seemed like his career was on an upward trajectory. Like, oh, this guy could really go places. And then somewhere in the mid-'80s, it's like, what happened, man? Well, let, let me put something <laughs> out there. I'll put something out there. I, I don't know anything about him in, in terms of what was really going on with him, but I'll put something out there. It's quite possible, too, though, that when he needed to have a success financially and other ways, maybe successful philosophically, you know, like he just maybe felt like it's not really happening anymore. Maybe he bit the bullet, too. I'm just putting it out there and said, let me ride this out and do this stuff, support these groups, support because I will come out ahead. It's possible. A lot of people do sell out like that. It's true. Yeah. 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 And, and, and who knows what's really going on with them? We don't know. Yeah. No, it's all guesswork. And it's all guesswork. But, you know, for somebody, when you're looking at these pictures, like the Octagon, like a Force of One, like quite a few pictures we're going to discuss, the missing in action movies coming up, you know, he definitely was in in sync with something else. So I can't imagine you would go from left to right so quickly. Exactly. Yeah, it's like overnight. You're like, what happened here? <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I tend to think personally, this is personally me speaking, that maybe it was a business decision. And it's a very good and wise business decision if you can do that financially. And I get that. You know, I don't, I'm not behind it 100% for, for my own personal various reasons. 
But I, I can see him doing that rather than making a psychically philosophical left-to-right uh, decision that's not a business decision, because then it makes no sense to anybody. Y'all, so that being said, we're going to go on to... An eye for an eye, 1981. Again, he's knocking them out one year after the other. He's on a very quick roll here with his films. Speaking of which, Chuck is on a roll at this point and hauls in a lot of big name and actual good actors. Rosalind Chow is the investigative reporter come widow of his partner. Mako as her father. Richard Roundtree as his boss. Christopher Lee as the drug-dealing news editor. You even get a few joke cast members like wrestler Professor Toru Tanaka and not necessarily the news annoying Stuart Pankin. This one's about a pair of undercover vice cops who get sold down the river, resulting in Chuck's partner getting burned to death during a sting. When he takes out a few of the opposition, Chief Roundtree turns against him and orders him off the case, causing Chuck to quit the force and go rogue. His partner's angry widow's onto something, so she also gets killed off, meaning his new partners in this are her father, who's Mako, and a reporter pal of Chow, so it's just annoying, so who cares? Uh, the expected twists, turns, and shootouts ensue before we find out that, shock, I know, Christopher Lee isn't the good guy, as if he ever is, Duke de Rich Lewis. So another very strong effort from Norris, bolstered by some good acting from the grieving and rich Chow and Mako in particular. It's a good one. It's a good one. Steve Carver was always one of Roger Corman's good guys. When you know, like he did the Capone with Ben Gazzara and the Susan Blakely Spread Eagle shot, which we discussed a few times. <laughs> That's a highlight of that movie. Steve Carver's always been one of Roger Corman's good guys. It's not a Roger Corman movie, so he worked outside of Corman. And this is not a bad picture. The budget's more up there, they shot in San Francisco. San Francisco. Well, that was a tongue twister for some reason. And it's um, the booze, man. It's happened to both of us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not drinking that much today, actually. Really? And uh, but it's the humidity. It's the humidity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My tongue is stuck to the roof of my mouth. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, good cast. Uh, Matt Clark, which you know. There's a character actor a lot of people have forgotten about. He's really good. He's ubiquitous. He's, he was in everything at one point, and then and then he's kind of. I'm not sure if he died early or just got out of the game. Or you really didn't see him for a while. He was in some Clint Eastwood pictures too. Good guy, you know. And you know, Mako and Richard Roundtree again. You know, this is the time period when the stuff is happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Props to you, yeah, Christopher Lee. You're right. You got that. Yeah, it's like. He's the villain. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see like somewhere he's the one. good guy because that would shock me. <laughs> I like this one. And and it was so weird that, like for me, like I just said, I like Force of One. I didn't like the Octagon as much as you did. I liked Eye for an Eye. And then Silent Rage happens. And it's just so weird because that's for a major studio. Yeah. So yeah. basically the last three we had seen in the theater, this one we didn't. 1982, Silent Rage. So you know you're in trouble when Chuck's a sheriff whose deputy is Stephen First, flounder from Animal House in the Delta House TV series that followed. Okay, so look at this asinine plot. There's a nut job staying with a family who's not his own. That's already strange. He feels an episode coming on. He can't take his pills for shaking too hard. And while he's on the phone with his shrink, winds up taking an axe to the family. So Chuck and company come in and take him down. All right, so far, whatever. But of course, with a shrink like Ron Silver, you know there's going to be a problem. Not only do they decide to, quote, save his life. Why? So they can send him to the electric chair? But they do it with some experimental drug that turns him into an invincible, unstoppable, mute serial killer. Just like Jason and Friday the 13th or Michael Myers and Halloween. They even try to rip off Halloween 2 with a darkened hospital corridor sequence. So as you can imagine, the rest of the film is Chuck and this lunatic chasing each other down, complete with the usual slasher film, look, he's still alive ending. It's really pretty bad. Not only is it Chuck Norris action film, but even as a slasher, 
slasher because this is no fucking idea which genre they wanted to make this. There's a lot of deaths. Don't get attached to anybody because they may wind up as the next victim. And in the end, it's a rather silly side note in Norris's early career. It's watchable, but what a stupid film. Yeah, I, I did not like this. I I mean, also, if you're going to have the villain be as psychotic as, as you have in this film, it's better to shoot him in shadows and, and you know, he's... He's front and center, too, which was kind of a weird choice. Popeye and Goofy. He reminds me of the guy from the Twisted Sister videos. Remember, Mr. Sister? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, very odd. That it reminded me a lot, you know, like the guy he starred in Scavellino's Nightmares of a Damaged Brain? Yes. Yeah, he reminded me a bit of that guy, too. It's just weird. Chuck wouldn't do a horror action thing like this probably for another 10 years. So, I mean, needless to say, this did not go over so great, but it went over well enough for MGM. Finally, he's got a major... Well, Columbia was a, was a major studio, and they backed this, and they distributed it. But then, well, Columbia kind of got out of the deal after this. But then <laughs> MGM came along, and MGM did his, you know, gave him a, th- a three-picture deal, but he only did one picture with them, which was Force Vengeance. It was actually seven years till his next slasher, but you're close enough. <laughs> I, just had, okay, you know, thank you. I, I had to take a look, because I'm like, I'm really curious. Was it ten years? Close. So kudos for that. So next up, Force Vengeance. No is not a word I'm accustomed to hearing. Is that so? You want to hear it again? I remember 1982's Force Vengeance as being a real turning point. I mean, Silent Rage was a slasher film, so like I said, we didn't go. I mean, I saw it soon after on HBO, and I was a bit nonplussed at the time. It was too far different from the usual Chuck Norris film. But like every film from Force of One through Eye for an Eye, I do think we caught this one in the theater, and holy shit, was it gruesome and dark. It was like he brought some of the ultra-violence thing over from his slasher experience to his more mainstream work. And as such, while it is recognizably a Chuck Norris film, either my father or I really liked it. I mean, it didn't sit well with us. My mother hated all this shit. She was a pain in the ass, but my father was always in the same kind of films I was. So Chuck's in a less-than-heroic role here as the muscle for a Hong Kong casino magnet. Supposedly, he's attached to the father, a Jewish fellow who he sees as a father figure, which gets spilled out really early on in the film when he's sent to strong-arm collections from some gambler who makes some slurs that incite Chuck to beat the shit out of him and his help. But the Eurasian son of this guy is a sleazebag who's in deep with a fish-eyed mobster over some gambling debts himself. So, of course, the father takes the hit, and Chuck has to protect his daughter, who's a rich party girl who's palling around with a rather gay-looking Richard Norton. For a bit, it turns into a foot race around Hong Kong with the daughter and Chuck's wife, who's actually the bitchy troublemaker from Animal House, by the way, Intel. And that part's pretty good. It's sort of a cross between Golden Needles and the Warriors in that respect. But before long, he holds them up with the old Vietnam pal while heading out to do his thing. Of course, the friend in question is black, which in those days inevitably meant likable but killed off quickly. Sure enough... Red shirt. Red shirt. Yes, exactly. Red shirt. Thank you. Sure enough, in trying to defend the girls, this poor schmuck gets beaten to a pulp and dies in Chuck's arms, but not before Chuck's girl gets rather nastily raped in the bargain. Or as the big Asian wrestler Lunk puts it, your girl was very good. Ha, ha, ha. Um, yay? Let's be friends with Chuck? Eesh. So, visually, it's pleasant enough. There's a nice fight on a fire escape in front of a giant neon sign that they swipe for the opening credits to. And while it's hardly an Emmanuel film, you really can't do a dull Hong Kong. But the tone is grim, the violence is ultra-nasty, and there's very few good people in this to root for. Everyone seems pretty compromised and questionable at best. Even Chuck himself beats on a gay informant's boyfriend and threatens to set the poor schmuck on fire, quipping, sweet cheeks, you could have been a toasted marshmallow. 
even so, for all its problems, I'd say it's the last true Chuck Norris film before he gets involved with canon and starts turning into the right-wing Rambo light. If I was putting together a box set, it would start with Good Guys Wear Black and end right here. Well, you know, what I found interesting is that this is a decent director, James Fargo, who a couple of years later would do some really interesting stuff. But, that being said, a lot of these, like David Opatz, I can't even pronounce his name, folks. Opatoshu was like a familiar face on things like Mission Impossible, which we discussed a lot, and uh, other TV shows of a time period. So we have lots of TV show actors, and then a lot of people we've never seen before. But it's a really gruesome, hard-boiled movie. And I think maybe Chuck wanted up the ante. Figured, you probably figured maybe, you know, all supposition here, maybe Silent Rage was a misstep. Maybe we don't want to go to this popular horror level. Let's do something else. And at the same time, this also had a terrible poster, really cartoonish looking. I remember it was plastered in theaters coming soon, Force Vengeance, Chuck Norris. And it was like, oh, it's a terrible poster. Yeah. Uh, you know, because back in the days, you know, like people saying, well, what the hell is this guy talking about poster for? Folks, do you, if you remember actual movie theaters, before trailers were so popular, you would go see a movie and plastered around the outside of a theater were stills, black and white stills, and posters. And that what made you come back next yes. week because sometimes you didn't always have a trailer right. for coming next week. When you, you went like, out hey. in the lobby, when you were walking into the theater, yeah. there was a, a lineup of maybe six to ten posters, maybe yeah. you know one or two of which were the film being shown because theaters weren't multiplexes back then really. And right. every other one was something that was coming up soon. Like, oh, that looks interesting or that looks a crap or whatever. And poster art, you know, nowadays with DVDs, they're really cheap and lazy. They don't want to buy the rights. So they do these dumb camera shots of somebody's head. Oh, look, this guy's in it. It must be good, like the Sean Connery joke. Or, or, or with DVDs and Blu-rays, they hire, they hire talent to do special, like, hey, for $10 more, Joe Schwartz did the Blu-ray uh <laughs> You see this shit going on And now? it always looks like crap. It's always cartoony. I'm like, fuck that shit. Yeah. Give me the original poster. Yeah, you know, like Severin does this. Arrow's been doing this now. Yep. If you get the special sale, there's only 100 of these limited edition ones. Otherwise, it's $75 <laughs> in your mother's grave. You know, it's like, hello? And they don't even look good. Give me the freaking original poster. I mean, you actually saw it. It's just like with album covers. Back when, the cover art was a thing. I mean, people would I make still... living students, and they're gorgeous, and you would get involved in them. You would play the record and stare at the poster and, like, you know, kind of You get... know what I do? I go to I go to street sales. I go to stoop sales, and people go, Lou, why do you do that? I'm looking for vinyl. But sometimes the vinyl scratch, I'm looking for the, I'm looking for the golden egg of cool album covers. Mm -hmm. If I, you know, I'm talking about dollar, right? If I, if I see like a cool album cover, like Mongo Santa Maria, remember them? Mm -hmm. They used to do great album covers. You know uh, how many albums I bought? We're talking about, like you say, like dollar sales and stuff like that. You do this right back into the 80s and 90s. I would go to these stores. If I see a good cover on it, I'll get it. I was like, fine. Well, yeah. I'll give it a shot. And nine times out of ten, you'll find something interesting. Sometimes they're crap, but, you know, the cover yeah. art was a big thing, and poster art was a huge thing. It was like Van good, Art. Good. Remember Van Art? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Goodwill, Salvation Army. You know, hey, they still got it. Church sales, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but I was there, you know, actually, somebody got a hold of me. He said, oh, the church has lots of records. And, eh, it's okay. I'm thinking, like, oh, come on. <laughs> no, they had tons of jazz. Really? Mint Pat Matheny. I'm like, oh, I'll just take all 30 of these. Because <laughs> they were free. 
Wow. But it's 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 all right. Yeah, you know, I like my jazz too. So anyway, that roundabout thing going back to this movie had a terrible poster. So and it just kind of strange. It was it was like forced exploit forced vengeance. It was almost like forced exploitation. They were trying to get onto a train that already hit the next station. Yes. But, that being said... Yeah, next up after this, okay, things start getting dicey. Again, it, we don't really hit the jump to shark moment for a while. It's kind of hard to pick one with Chuck because even though it's very different, there's still some fun movies in here for sure. This isn't one of them. <laughs> Lone Wolf McQuaid, 1983. The apparent direct inspiration for Walker, Texas Ranger. Though for all its faults, it's much better than that. Basically, Chuck is a loner of a Texas Ranger who gets assigned this Eric Estrada-type partner and winds up screwing the ubiquitous yet strangely classy Playboy playmate Barbara Carrera and running afoul of David Carradine's military weapon hijacking operation. Some weird genre actors show up in this, L.Q. Jones, Fight for Your Life's William Sanderson, Leon Isaac Kennedy, they spruce things up a bit, and it's hardly as... I don't know, dusty and depressingly one note, as Walker would prove to be later. But it's not exactly top-tier Chuck, either. His scenes with Carrera are the high point, and his growing partnership with his new guy, Carlos Beltran is his name, is endearing enough in a buddy cop film way, but yeah, it's uh, it doesn't really work. I don't like it. Well, uh, I think what was really interesting is that, you know, so he gets a Columbia deal, and then Silent Rage didn't do as well as they hoped, so he gets an MGM deal, and they're forced vengeance didn't do as well as he hopes. Now he's working with Orion, who at, you know, for for a time period, Orion was like the guy. Big deal, you know, yeah. Robocop, a bunch of other things. And so Lone Wolf McQuaid actually was the, the shit, because you had David Carradine, who I don't know, when did Kung Fu go off the air, you know? Like in 78, 79. Alright, so, so about three years before this, you know, so David Carradine is still not embedded into his like I'll do anything phase. <laughs> so you know he's still he's still he's still rolling with that stuff from Kung Fu and and Chuck is still new. He's still fresh. He's doing a picture a year, maybe two pictures a year now. Mm-hmm. So they're gonna put Chuck Norris and David Carradine, the new guy on Kung Fu, together, and that's why everything led up to that fight. Which is so disappointing at it the was, end. It was. It was terrible. <laughs> because, you know, David Carradine told me, this is true, it's in my book. David Carradine told me, well, I didn't know Kung Fu. I just did what I do, you know. <laughs> and I mentioned this movie, and he's like, yeah, Chuck Norris. Well, you know, I, I by then I know something. And Chuck does his thing. And we're like standing there. And hold on, I have to light another cigarette. <laughs> yeah, so we're doing our thing there, man. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, so. <laughs> in, in retrospect, this movie was not like, I don't know. It's not like the raid. You know, it's just like, you know, bombast, vengeance, martial arts, wall to wall, which I think people were hoping and expecting. Yeah. But. Be that as it may. It reminded me of Breaker Breaker, but it wasn't that bad. <laughs> no, it's, it's better than that. Barbara Carrera was still hot oh, at yeah. that time. Yeah. Before she had, like, puppy cheeks done, <laughs> Botox stuff, whatever. <laughs> it's a fine Chuck movie. It's it's disappointing, though, in many aspects because of the team-up that disappoints. Mm. But followed by... 
the, here he goes, 1984, missing in action, a hilarious Canon Films Rambo copycat that redeems itself mostly via some excellent octagon meets heist film business, where Chuck has to sneak out of a hotel where he's under close guard and military all over the streets, perform a mission, and return undetected, pretending he was born the Miss Elizabeth lookalike all along. I kept expecting Randy Savage to bust in this movie with a, oh yeah! Chuck is a Vietnam War POW who makes it out of the country, but is coerced into returning after reports of remaining POWs emerge. It turns out it was all set up by the commie government, led by perennial sleazebag James Hong, to frame him for supposed atrocities against the Vietnamese instead. So what's a man to do? That's right, turn the tables, take out those Viet Cong shits, and bring them back alive. There's a funny bit in a local bar where you hear the world's worst rendition of Do You Think I'm Sexy while bar girls shake their naked asses, and Chuck cuts a munitions deal with a Chuck McCann lookalike, and then it's on to the prison camp. A few explosions, a lot of gunfire, and it's all over. Closing on Chuck and the newly freed POWs busting in on a press conference where the Viet Cong are congratulating themselves on being found, quote, innocent. Well, it's a lot more fun than Rambo was anyway. My take on this, it started a whole, not just for Canada, it just started a whole wave of cinema. Mm-hmm. Well, technically Rambo did, but yeah. Technically Rambo did, but it was like Rambo was a standalone uh, for, for two years. Rambo was 1982, and that was like a standalone. And and you know that I still say, you know, we did our Stallone show. I still say to this day, that's a really good movie. I really like First Blood. Rambo itself was okay. No, that's the one I meant. Sorry, First Blood. It's a really good movie. It is. It's a very good movie. I'm surprised how good it was. Yeah, Brian Denny. And so um, anti-war and so anti-hick exploitation kind of stuff, and against how the Vietnam vets were being treated when they came back. All stuff that I remember seeing when I was young. So it was a very left-leaning movie, believe it or not. It's a good film. And and too recently, within the last two years, see the original ending. I was floored, yeah. floored that, that he he kills himself. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, holy shit. Yep. Uh, which might might be something we didn't discuss on that show, folks. I think you mentioned uh, it quickly, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it wasn't even an extra, I think, till maybe on the umpteenth Blu-ray version. But so, like, two years goes by, and like it starts to become a wavy thing like you know this whole thing but you know what after vietnam there's rumblings of shit going on oh yeah so it's not fantasy just like me there may be guys over there mm-hmm. so that went on to the early 80s for sure and it was realistic yeah. like people were really serious about it, it was conspiracy theory stuff it's like yeah there may be something over there but shh you know <laughs> the government's keeping it quiet like what yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, we uh, uh well, you know, I'm not even sure. We're even in a deer hunter time period yet. Maybe that's a couple more years to go. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a thing. So Canon sees box office, and so they create this thing. They sign Chuck to a deal. And suddenly, this is the thing. This picture gets so big. Mm-hmm. The Italians started making them. Yes. And the <laughs> Philippines. And and it was like they they didn't leave for like ten years. I mean, I'm sure the Philippines <laughs> are really sorry that they left. But um, the Italians went to the Philippines mm-hmm. and and they started making all these pictures like Red Brown. Oh, especially Margariti, God. <laughs> Margariti Warbeck. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it was a thing. This movie, <sighs> you described it well, and and you know it is what it is. It's a thing. It led to <sighs> uneven 
sequels. Yeah, I actually addressed the sequels right away just to keep it in the same tone yes. of thought. Yes, sir. 1985, which is the year after he does Mission Action 2, the beginning, it's a much more sordid affair, effectively a male version of a woman in prison film. Familiar TV bit player Soon Teko, who you won't recognize the name, but you might remember him from Earth 2, Man with the Golden Gun, Good Guys Wear Black, Death Wish 4. He's the sadist camp commander who, between bouts of torture and humiliation, forces the POWs to grow opium for a local drug dealer. Seriously. Not much happens beyond a lot of sordid suffering until the expected explosive ending, which sets us up for the original Missing in Action. I never liked that film, and I still don't see any purpose to its existence. Go on to three. All right, so three, Braddock Missing in Action 3, which took him another three years to make. There was films in between here. Jumping up a few years to the sequel, yes, the order of these films, technically, in terms of plot, is 312, the Chicago area code. This one is much better than two, at least, but it's still pretty non-essential. This time, Chuck is a free man, but here's that his Korean war bride, though I think she's supposed to be Vietnamese. She's actually his Korean, though. Is still alive, so he heads back to just post-war Vietnam, where he finds her and a son he didn't know he had trying to leave the country. Of course, she gets promptly shot down in front of him, leaving the rest of the film about Chuck getting his revenge in the Viet Cong general who did it, and liberate his son, meaning a whole bunch of explosions and gunfire. This time, solely the work of Chuck, his son, and a battling priest whose missionary full of kid refugees wind up part of the de facto POW camp. Again, it's not a pimple on the ass of the original, but it's much more watchable and engaging than two, which is nothing more than some sort of sadistic homoerotic endurance test. I'm sorry, that film sucks. I'm glad you pointed that out about two because our enterprising beloved friends in Italy, and we all love Italian genre center, don't we all, folk? They latched on to the weirdest things in these films. For example, the sadism and and the downbeat, grungy, if I can say, aspects of these pictures. So, you know, the whole thing was supposed to be the jingoistic rah-rah we're going to make it, we're going to make it, okay, things happen, and then there's the pull-through, and there's the heroic ending. We, we succeed, right? Yeah. But what the Italians latched onto, or they misunderstood, <laughs> that maybe they, thought, maybe they thought the cool part was like the torture, the debasement, <laughs> the, the, the male rape or implied. Yes. The, 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 I mean, it's like, what is going on here? Uh-huh. It doesn't make those films. Uh, we're, we're, we're not coming down any of those pictures at all. Which is, they're a whole other subgenre. <laughs> uh, but, but because of Chuck and, and the success of these things, hell, even David Carradine, who two, three years before was trying to do mano a mano against Chuck Norris and lost, theoretically, succeeds Chuck. Because he thinks, I can have another career in reinvention. No, sort of, maybe. Who knows? But, yeah, I don't know what to add to 2 and 3. You spoke of them quite well. <laughs> so, jumping back to 1985, Code of Silence. Now, I remember seeing this one in the theater yes. with my father. It was actually one of the last Chuck Norris films that we saw that way after a bit of a break. Because, like I said, we skipped the missing in action films. We skipped Lone Wolf McQuaid. And, of course, we skipped Silent Ridge. But at the time, we really both liked this film. Seeing it again yeah. now, it's okay. It's just not a Chuck Norris film, really. I mean, you have a film with, like the later hero in the terror. In some ways, it's another cop film. Actually, more of a buddy cop film, but we'll get to that shortly. But there's still the martial arts and a throwback to the Silent Rage slasher film. 
This one's more of a sub-Serpico, really, with Chuck refusing to exonerate a cop who screwed up a big drugs thing, killing a kid and planting a gun on him to make it look like self-defense. <laughs> like we haven't seen that lately, fear for my life. Since he more or less crosses the, quote, thin blue line, everyone on the force hates him, so he has to take down the drug lords by himself. And the main baddie? Henry Silva! Yes, those of you who don't here. There's no martial arts, there's no introspection, there's not even any of the crazy jingoism Chuck was falling towards around this time with Missing in Action, Invasion USA, and Delta Force. It's just a fairly dark cop film for its period. Oh, and there's some nonsense about a robot cop, but it's wholly extraneous to the plot, and I'm not even sure why they put it in. Appeal to kids in a film that's dark and gritty? So yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I do remember thinking it was good at the time, but rewatching it, I was like, eh. I think it's one of Chuck's best movies. I'm, uh, I'm not saying it's his best movie. And Andrew Davis, Andy Davis, at the time, was the guy who came out of nowhere and was suddenly hired to make these gritty cop pictures. This was his picture with Chuck. And got a young, de- well, he always looked older, Dennis Farina, you know. <laughs> Uh, I love Dennis Farina. He was he was like a natural guy. You know, he would have been great in The Sopranos, and uh, he was great in what was that Crime Story, that Miami Vice thingy, and uh, he did a, quite a few movies. He was in that Travolta Get Shorty, I think. Really good character actor, major actor actually. No, I should remember that. So Henry Silva is the villain in this. Andy Davis makes gritty cop pictures. So what are we expecting from Chuck? Not a cop film. So this was a bit of a oddity. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I'm looking at a note now. Dennis Farina was an actual cop yes. who joined this movie Moonlighting. Whoa, okay. And because of his role in this film, got the lead in Crime Story, the Michael Mann follow-up to Miami Vice. So there you go. This did well for Chuck. It gave him a, lo- a different kind of persona. This is it a completely successful movie? Not really. This is it a completely su- successful Chuck movie? Not really. But he is an interesting thing. Two years later, two years later, Andy Davis goes with new actor on the scene, martial arts and martial artist and martial arts teacher and trainer named Steven Seagal. Makes Above the Law. Seagal's best picture. His first two films were his best, yeah. Yeah, so it's very interesting. So Andy Davis, yo, goes from Chuck to Seagal, makes the two best pictures these guys did among the two best pictures these guys did. So I, I still think this holds up well. It's not a great film. Neither is the movie I think coming up we're going to discuss, but I love that movie. <laughs> so... 1985, Invasion USA. And yes, this delirious piece of Cold War paranoia was actually written by Chuck. <laughs> it's 1985, the height of the Cold War, with Reagan and Chernenko sitting on the hot button. Reagan was always being shown on TV with his Secret Service prominently carrying that suitcase with the red button as a warning that he was always ready to initiate nuclear war. And the press would always point that out, like, there he is, there's the guy with the suitcase, the red button. And just before Gorbachev came in with his somewhat less inflammatory ideas of glasnost and perestroika, so it was pretty hot. The Cold War was burning hot at this point. So Chuck pens this paranoid film of Russian KGB agents killing off Cuban refugees and working an arms deal with Miami drug dealers while inciting race riots to weaken the resistance while they launch a literal invasion. Holy shit, Chuck was a prophet. Too bad he didn't remember his own script when he endorsed the commie spy in question for the highest office in the land a few decades later. Anyway, what ensues is completely ridiculous, with the commies pretending to be cops and killing off random folks on all sides of the ethnic divide to start a race war. Hello, Mr. Bannon. Hello, Mr. Trump. Chuck being hunted by the cops as a mass-murdering vigilante and a crazed Richard Lynch grandstanding like he's straight out of a comic book. 
the baddies attempt to blow up a school bus full of kids during a construction traffic jam. Don't worry, Chuck manages to save the day. There are some insane stunts like his girlfriend grabbing a kidnapped victim between two speeding cars and a denouement that features the U.S. military versus the commies on home soil while Chuck pulls a diehard light hunting Lynch down for the final fight through an empty office building. It's fun. It's a lot of fun, actually. But it's empty-headed and asinine. Or seem that way until 2016, anyway. So, what's your take? <laughs> this is one sick fucking movie. I would say it again. This is one sick fucking movie. Richard Lynch, who I had the pleasure of speaking to with his types. <laughs> Was it a pleasure with him being drunk like that? <laughs> and, and I have the pleasure of interviewing him twice drunk. I wasn't drunk. He was drunk. I, I don't drink when I interview, but I, I interview drunks. So, uh, we talk about jazz. <laughs> yes, the last time I interviewed him, he said, can we talk about me growing up in New York City and Harlem and jazz? All my black friends? Sure, man. Because when somebody's like that, you go with it. Richard Lynch is an amazing villain. I mean, it's probably one of the most villainous villains of all villainy in this fucking movie. <laughs> and and it's cartoonish, oh, and yeah. yet it's a sadism supreme. I mean, so, okay, what, what was that movie, the John Milius picture? Is it John Milius? Conan? Uh, <laughs> no, it's the John Milius picture with the, the teenagers in high school and the, the Russians. War games? No, Russians and the Cubans. Red Dawn. Red Dawn, you're right, yes. Right, okay, so this is, okay, so Red Dawn was like this rah-rah, jingoistic, oh shit, look what's happening to America kind of thing, and it was actually a bit of a downer because we actually didn't win. So this is like that. So you have an invasion on U.S. soil, led by these sadistic fucking guys. They just go around, they go to malls, they just shoot away, big time, automatic weapons. I mean, there's a scene where, where Richard Lynch, I, there's a lot of scenes in this movie, I still remember to this day, where these guys are doing blow, right? They're, they're compatriots of, of Lynch's evil dude. And he just slams the guy. I think he has like a metallic uh, straw. And he slams the guy's head down on it. I said, oh, God damn. <laughs> um, and then there are, you know, scenes of these, what was popular in those days? Like these these little, like high-speed little pleasure boats that people, like, you could fit four people on them. You know, so there's a lot of, like, doing that. I think it, does this movie take place at Christmas time? It might. It's in Florida, right? It's in Florida, yes. So you couldn't tell if it was. Florida, <laughs> Florida or Miami, the two places. They're fucking same places. So, yo, it's like, it's hot, but people like, have a very merry little Christmas. It's 92 degrees out. What are you, crazy? <laughs> but, so, it's a holiday, whatever it is, right? And, and so these guys attack, and they're sadistic, evil, fucking villain guys. And I, I never understood this stuff. Why go there? Just go to New York and shoot a bunch of people. You'll have a lot more damage. Not, of course, don't do it while I'm around. But anyway, so uh, it's 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 weird that people will attack America and like we're gonna attack Milwaukee. Okay, <laughs> right? You know, there won't be any cows for a while. Don't shoot the cows. You know, all right? Um, this is a really weird. I rewatched this for the show, and I was like, "Wow, this is so crazy!" This movie. 
And it's prescient because of the whole thing about invading by starting a race war. It's better way off balance. Yes. And that's exactly what's going on right now. Because they go in there, they start shooting down all the guys in the barrio or whatever, just random people going to church yeah. or going to work or whatever. And they convince them that it's, you know, the white folks doing it. Then they go into the white folks and start shooting them down and convince them it's the Latinos doing it. And, of course, everything starts to come into arms. And it's like, hmm, I see what Donald Trump is doing. <laughs> so there you go. It's it's yeah, weird it's, that Chuck saw this and yet when the way he went afterwards. It's a it's a very strange thing. Uh, it's canon. It's it's probably huge, huge money maker. Huge money maker for <laughs> canon. It's probably Donald Trump's favorite film of all time, no doubt. Um, <laughs> oddly enough, though, this came out the same year as Code of Silence, which is like a different kind of movie. You know, and, and so so you got this period of time where all of a sudden Chuck is on the ascendant. And then he follows it up with a movie with Academy Award winners. Yeah. 1986, now, the Delta Force. Aside from Mission in Action 2, this is the first literally unwatchable Chuck Norris film. Trying to be a proto-expendables with a Starfucker cast, you got Lee Marvin, Martin Balsam, Joey Bishop, Robert Vaughn, our man Steve James, George Kennedy, Bo Svensson, Shelley Winters, Susan Strasberg, Lainey Kazan, for God's sakes. This is one of those stupid fucking terrorist kidnap a plane things, and this time the baddies are from the Ayatollah's Iran. About the only interesting thing about it is that Lee Marvin's part was originally supposed to be Cannon's other top star, Charlie Bronson. Otherwise, whatever. Next. Strangely, it was followed by a sequel that dropped all the big names. The biggest you get is Richard Jacob, which should say something. It made the baddest Colombian drug lord or some shit. And that one was called Delta Force 2, The Colombian Connection. The less said about that one, the better. What's your take on these two stinkers? Well, Delta Force was a huge picture for, for Canon, and it was a, a huge movie for Lee Marvin, who at this, you know, he's getting older now. Actually, here's, here's, a, here's something. We should do a Lee Marvin show. I actually really would like to do that. I love Lee Marvin. Wrong, Lee Marvin. And the thing is, Lee always looked older than he was. Yes. So I was kind of shocked to find out that when he did this movie, he was only in his early 60s. And really, really surprised that Lee wasn't, you know, to my, to my mind, not much older. Yeah, I assumed he was so much older. There's a couple of guys uh, like that. You know, Lee Marvin, George Papard, uh, yes, James yeah. Coburn. I mean, you know. We, we thought they were older than they were because they, they just looked older. You know, I'm not just talking about the peppery hair either, the salt and pepper hair. Lee at that time hadn't been doing too much. He had done a few roles, some gems, some stinkers, and then, say, you know, Cannon comes along and, you know, we got Chuck as a huge star now, so you guys will support each other and be co co stars and you know, this the reason why this movie got made was because of the was that in uh, Germany, the uh, attack on the Israelis, remember? And then there was the Antibi thing, yep. which was real, which was the mainly uh, Jewish passengers on the flight that was supposed to go out of Antebi. Didn't they make that one read on Antebi about that? There's two or three movies yeah. about that. One with Kinski of all people and and, and quite a few people. One with Bronson. So, you know, there's, there's quite a few versions of that out. But this was the, we're, we're coming out of the missing in action thing. So we got to keep going with that. We got to keep supporting that rah-rah. <laughs> jingoistic crap. Flag, <laughs> right, jingoistic crap, flag-waving stuff. So let's do this, you know. And this picture gets made. And it did very well. Oh, my God, my cat wants to go near my Manhattan. Go away, you. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> so like all the floor, boom. Um, 
Yes, she was like sniffing the glass. Like, what's that? Whoa. Whoo. <laughs> but, uh, but this did very well for a lot of people. I remember Chuck and Lee Marvin on the Good Morning America or whatever show that it might have been Good Morning America back in the day, you know, promoting us. And Lee wasn't in the best of health post movie. And apparently he was sick when he made this. He was fighting a cancer for like 10, 15 years. That a lot of us didn't know, and and so he lived a long time with it. So he didn't look his best, but he did a good job in this. And uh, so this is not as I like it better than you do. I don't think it's as terrible as it is. It is what it is. Yeah, but how about the second one? Well, the second one is like Obama. So he's, <laughs> yeah, it's it's not a really good picture, and they're trying to support Chuck with what Cannon thinks are the people that will be successful. Richard Jacob. <laughs> Well, Richard Jekyll supported, remember, Richard Jekyll supported Lee Marvin in the Dirty Dozen. But he's the yeah, only they, big name. The rest of them are like, who? Yeah, I know, but that's that's not the thinking of Jewish moguls. <laughs> <laughs> but you're saying, like, okay, well, they figured these guys would be the next breakout stars, but they don't have, like, a Michael Dudikoff there. It's, you know, people that they did use. It's just like, who are these people? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Long pause. <laughs> so, uh, next up. <laughs> We're going to talk about a movie I really didn't like, right? Really? Uh, okay, well, it's the same year, Firewalker. You'll die of thirst while all the time the elixir of life will be right in your hands, and you'll still be bald. <laughs> right on the heels of Canon's version of King Solomon's Mines, which itself is a spit take of Romancing the Stone, a more comedy-centric slash women's romance take on the Indiana Jones films, comes this atypical, if enjoyable, Chuck Norris comedy adventure. Many years ago, the White Eyes gave us this land for as long as the grass grow and the waters flow. As you can see, we got screwed. Chuck and Lou Gossett Jr. are adventure types, bumming around the world in search of treasure. That's pretty much it. One particular treasure hunt for Aztec gold, with Flash Gordon's annoying Dale Arden, Melody Anderson, in the Karen Allen slash Theron Stone slash Kathleen Turner role. John Reese davies perennial American Indian Will Sampson, and Sonny Landon provide a little color along the way. It's really sparse and low-budget by comparison to its obvious forebears, but it's also funnier and more endearing than they were, with Norris and Gossett working together surprisingly well. If he made more action comedies like this instead of crap like Sidekicks and Top Dog, I think he would have had a longer career in theatricals than he did. But obviously you hate it, so what's your take? I don't know, it just looked cheap. It, looked, it, it felt cheap at the time, it looked cheap. And then he got into this... Well, I think Cannon also famously or infamously were also uh, having financial problems around this time. Mm -hmm. So it just Firewalker... Look cheap. There was a sequel, I think, too. Really, I didn't know that. And, yeah, and and just I don't know. And <laughs> the missing in action return he did, where his brother directed, which followed us, missing in action three. Braddock also looked cheap. Yeah, you know, we're, we're we're getting we're getting to this thing where you know Chuck finally got to where he wanted to be, and he's working with name actors, and his pictures are actually bringing in money. And then suddenly, because he's stuck with Canon, suddenly they're like, we can make this picture for $15. <laughs> Why spend $15 million? Yeah, you know, it's that kind of thing. Very true. So I, I, I'm sorry, I, I didn't think Firewalker was as juicy as it was for you. Oh, it's not a great picture. It's just more endearing in a way. So same year, actually, comes Chuck Norris Karate Commandos. It's a surprisingly short-lived Ruby Spears cartoon. Well, 
Not that surprising, given just how terrible it was, in that it didn't even make the usual 13-episode length for these things. It's notable mostly for just how many times to say, Chuck Norris, in the show bumper and a silly post-Super Friends multicultural setup. This sub-G.I. Joe with elements of Inspector Gadget and the feel of a He-Man cartoon features a Cobra-style baddie named The Claw and his hooded pal Super Ninja. I'm not kidding, it's Super Ninja. Who have an organization named Vulture, which is never spelled out. You don't know what those letters mean if they mean anything at all. Chuck and his goofy ass team of global boobs. One's a samurai, one's a sumo, there's a girl and a couple of kids. Go at it with the baddies. At the end, like most filmation jobs or the Mr. T cartoon, Chuck shows up and does a live action moral for the kids while all sweaty working out in his tiny office gym. It is terrible which makes it seem pretty funny at first. But it's actually painful to sit through it, much less for all five episodes. The furthest I had gotten prior to prep for the show was two episodes, but I actually had to put on the brave face here and force my way through all five. The last one actually is Priceless, where they go to Voodoo Island, and there's some barefoot Papaloa houngin in a top hat and floods, who makes instant dolls of the gang and sends a group of hilarious-looking zombies after him. The 80s were pretty lame and crazy. I remember a Rambo cartoon and a comic called Reagan's Raiders, where doddering old Ronnie was essentially Rambo, all muscled up and running around shirtless, headbanded, oh, and heavily yeah, armed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, so this was that kind of thing. It's horrible, but if you want a cheap laugh, it's definitely worth looking up at least on YouTube or something. And, you know, you can hear the wonderful opening theme song at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> you anything you want to say about this one? Or? No. <laughs> <laughs> and that says it all. So next up, 1988, which is a two-year break, by the way. He did nothing. Hero and the Terror. Unfortunately, there's a reason you can find this one, like Lone Wolf McQuaid and Breaker Breaker, on several multi-film DVDs. Chuck makes a Hendrixian slight return to his earlier, in its own weird way, far more successful Silent Rage with his late canon entry. Here he's part of one of those ubiquitous 80s buddy cop films. Of course, he's supposed to be a loner, but he's got pals like American Ninja Steve James and this whole side story about his romance with his pregnant wife. Seriously, he's having a romance with his pregnant wife. <laughs> and it's exactly what you expect from that. Brightly lit, cheesy Casio keyboard soundtrack filled with jokes, the whole shtick. This time the serial killer is bigger, but less believably crazy. It's actually Jack O'Halloran, the big lunk from the Phantom Zone in Superman 2. A balding superfly himself, Ron O'Neill, and perennial baddie Billy Drago also pop up, but it's really all about this woman-hating serial killer who's paralleled by Norris's supposed self-loathing over being a fake hero, because the baddie actually went up in jail because of a slip and fall during pursuit, but everyone credited him with a takedown. But that's all bullshit, because at this point in his career, Chuck has moved beyond the thoughtful introspection of his early films to become a far more surface-level and straightforward action hero. He's haunted by the idea of the killer being back in action, but doesn't seem overly concerned about being a phony. In fact, most of the film's really about his romancing his pregnant fiance. I think he knocked her up first, then got romantic, like a self-directed shotgun wedding. I don't know, it sucks. Aside from that endlessly recurring sore thumb of a side plot, it's certainly watchable, as most films of that type tend to be, but there's nothing special about it except how crappy it is by comparison with most of the films that came before it. No, I really didn't like it, and I don't think most people would. I think it's a disappointing film for Chuck Norris fans. Although, I did like a slightly similar film that was two years, three years later, The Hitman. I had never even seen it, so go ahead. Yeah, it's about 1991. Gosh, this is still canon. It might be one of his last canon films. He plays a cop shot by his crooked partner in a coma, blah, blah, blah. We've seen this all done before. But this time, so Chuck's off the force, I believe, and... He's, he's got a little bit of sadism to him. First Chuck Norris movie you'll ever see, and I think I think his brother Aaron directed this one like he did an earlier picture. Mm-hmm. First Chuck Norris movie you will ever see where he's kind of like just, he's got dark part to him. He's like, 
because he was shot, because he was shot by someone he was trusted, because he was a good guy, and now he's not so good anymore. The Hitman really is like, I like that one. There's a lot of good things going on. This is probably one of the last, for a long, long time, really good Chuck Norris movies. And they sold it as such, and what happened? It didn't do well, because this is at the point where people want to see Chuck as the happy-go-lucky Mr. Karate Man, you know? And, and, and people still liking pictures from five years before, still liking A Force of One, The Octagon, you know, and, 10 years before. And, and you know, and just, they don't want to go to the theater just, just to get a theatrical. They don't want to go to the theater to see Chuck Norris as this, like, tortured guy who's, like, fucked up and who's going to take his vengeance, rightfully so, on the people responsible for putting him into the coma in the first place. You know, and he's a, he's a copper, ex-copper on the edge. It's a good movie. He's really good in it. It's actually, here's the other thing. It's one of the Chuck Norris movies where, like, it shows he's, you know, he's learned a little bit of the acting skill. That's a shame. A, it did not do well. B, nobody paid attention, like you. And C, <laughs> and C, that it just fell between the cracks, because this is really a decent Chuck Norris movie. So next year, <laughs> this is Chuck gone totally off the rails. Sidekicks. Like Schwarzenegger yeah. doing comedies and kid films, you know, Kindergarten Cop, Jingle All the Way, those, those come especially to mind. Chuck tries to temper his hard-bitten action image by showing up a film with a kid as his literal, quote, sidekick. Of course, the title's also a pun for a karate move, so you get the idea of where this one's going right from the outset. Some dorky kid is a bullied asthmatic type who has weird daydreams about being Chuck Norris's partner in action films and rescuing his hottie crush of a teacher, Nico Mastarakis Alum and starlet of Double Dragon and Rambo, Julian Nixon. Anyone want to hear some hilarious tell-all stories about everything from being a news reporter in fascist Greece to the inside track on indie filmmaking and folks like George Kennedy and Oliver Reed acting up? Check out the third I interview with Nico. It's one of my all-time favorites. So, of course, it turns into a Karate Kid thing, with Conan's Mako in the Mr. Miyagi role and Joe Piscopo's The Bully Dojo Head, and Chuck appears relatively briefly as a helping hand, who turns out to be all in the kid's head. He made it on his own. Aw, oh, piece of shit. Anything you want to say? Well, it's just like a career killer. You yeah. know, if, and, and seriously, I think real Chuck's feature film career and kind of like last action hero which was the same idea well yeah and and you know what yeah that that arnold arnold took a took a took a pounding for that you know he was the, the biggest star in the world at that point in time then he he does this thing which on paper uh here's my segue you know last action hero he does this thing that on paper schwarzenegger could have gotten away with but john mckinnon who did do Die Hard and a couple other movies, so he's not a bad director. Commando, I think. Possibly Commando. Uh, but at that time, everybody was, uh, although I don't think Arnold may have, every, there, there are stories of, like, coke-blasted <laughs> business meetings, coke-blasted film shoots, and The Last Action Hero is one of the worst films ever made. Mm. And so was Sidekicks. <laughs> and so was Sidekicks. You know, different director. But it's along that line. You can't do this fourth world breaking thing, and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, with action heavy stars, it just doesn't work. You know, and some things fourth wall breaking does work. Like we we have yet to do a Van Damme show, and he had this show for Amazon Prime. I think they did one or two seasons of that, and I really liked that. And Van Damme was not only making fun of himself, but he was breaking the wall a lot, and it worked. Yeah, I saw an episode or two of that it was recommended to me, but I got bored, so I dropped off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's not it's not bad though. I mean, really, it's 
you got bored, but it wasn't horrible. No, no, it's an interesting concept for sure. So, but that works. This didn't. Yeah, well, the didn't. thing is, too, you've got these films, Thomas Schwarzenegger's film and this one, where you've got these violent action heroes, these R-rated films at the time, that mm. are being idolized by, in these films by, like, you know, what, 12-year-old boys? How the fuck are they even seeing these things? I mean, okay, yeah, my father got me into these films and whatever else, and we saw them in HBO, right. but technically, they quote-unquote should not be watching these things in the first place. How are they? It's, it's like when we talk about Bardot with uh, Dear Brigitte. How the fuck is Billy Moomy watching Bridget Bardot films in the 50s? That doesn't happen, or isn't supposed to happen. So not it's just nonsensical from minute one. Plus, you get no crossover. You've got an audience that's at least teenage and beyond. You know, twenty-year-olds, thirty-year-olds, forty-year-olds. They're like, okay, I gotta get my testosterone fixed with this crap. And then they're gonna go watch some fucking kids film. Like, no, I don't think so. Who's this appealing to? So yeah, like you said, it's a career rocker. Then into Walker, right? In the eyes of a ranger, the unsuspecting stranger had better know the truth of wrong from right cause the eyes of the ranger are upon you any wrong you do he's gonna see when you're in texas look behind you cause that's where the ranger's gonna be yeah so now right after that he started walker texas ranger uh, yeah. I really can't stand this show. I never could. It's pretty bad, like Renegade, without the unintentional comedy factor. That's all I'll say. I will mention there was a 2000 martial law crossover. Sammo Hung finally took a shot at glory in American television, but that show's a mixed bag. I found the series pretty funny, but there's a major change in cast and show style between the two seasons. Obviously, the first season's much better, though there is a weird three-parter with post Jason Take Manhattan Kelly Who and future Dum Dum Dugan and Damian Dark Neil McDonough that's worth seeing towards the end of the run. Along the way, there's a pretty terrible crossover with Walker, Texas Rangers, so there you go. But, yeah, the show is just unwatchable for me. Eight years it ran, though. Yeah, you know, more power to him. His, his film career, I mean, I don't know what was to blame for a tanking, but, you know, his film career just, just kind of bombed out. It could have been sidekicks, God knows. Mm-hmm. Or it could have been... The two upcoming... One... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one year into Walker, Texas Ranger, he does a return to horror. Yes. And it's a bit dark, and it's a bit nasty, and it totally is not what Chuck Norris fans wanted. And I'm sure it wasn't what Walker, Texas Ranger fans wanted, y'all. No way. Hellbound. I'm talking about Hellbound. Go ahead. So, Hellbound, I've not seen this one, but I had to at least take a look into it in its trailer. Whew! Chuck was already swiping from folks like Stallone with his Rambo films, Mr. T with his cartoon, and Schwarzenegger with his kid film turn. Now he takes yet another leaf out of Schwarzenegger's book and tries his hand like End of Days at satanic horror mixed with action. From the look of it, nobody came out on top. Even the trailer looks too awful to watch, and I don't mean that in a so-terrible-you'll-love-it sense like Miami Connection or something like that. It looks like it's the same situation as the next and last film we're going to tackle. He probably did it to give his aspiring director little brother a break again, so... I don't know. It just looked like a fucking mess. What's your take on it, though, since you saw it? Yeah, it's it's a weird film where where I really like the Hitman. Uh, one of the things he did just prior to or the first year of Walker, he he wants to do gritty, y'all. So why are you doing this TV thing? So he wants to do gritty where, y'all, the, the Chicago cops are after possibly Satan himself or his emissary, played by Johnny Alucard, Christopher <laughs> Neve. 
Remember from Dracula AD nineteen seventy two? Yes. A little a little less here, but you know, he looks the same ish. And and so now, uh 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 <laughs> but that's a much better film, Dracula AD seventy two I actually like. Uh, yeah. But Chuck Chuck's Chuck's detective and his fellow cops are, you know, looking for a serial killers, murdering priests, rabbis, blah blah blah. And it becomes this kind of thinly veiled oh what's that movie with Kirk Douglas the Antichrist wannabe oh uh Kirk Douglas Simon Ward oh Holocaust 2000 also known yes. as oh, I forget the other name it becomes an urban version of that and and it's like we're running but even that was passe you you know it's already 1985 how are you doing this you know mm-hmm. yeah so it didn't really work so which is why Chuck works with dogs next. <laughs> So, yes, Chick literally works with dogs. Top dog, 1995. So here is what is likely the nadir of Chuck's career, where he's in a comedy buddy cop film of sorts with a dog. Seriously, that's his partner. I think he made this one, once again, a favorite to his younger brother Aaron, who directs. But suffice to say, it sunk his movie career and relegated the man to the wonderful world of straight-to-video television and infomercials. Did I mention it goes the dead bang route and centers on neo-Nazis? That's right. Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, and the alt-right were once so universally reviled as to be the go-to baddies in action films directed at mainly conservative audiences because the real hoity-toity tree-hugger types wouldn't be seen dead at some revenge-based action flick. Damn, things done change, and not for the better. I have no take on this one. (laughs) Top dog. I don't blame you. Uh, but that's really seriously it. I mean, he does Walker, Texas Ranger all the way to 2001. But in between, there's not a lot. I mean, he does something called Sons of Thunder. I don't even know what the hell that is, TV series. Yeah, he did, did a couple of TV things. There is, I think we, should, we could close out with that, is that Chuck was also after, <laughs> after Top Dog. <laughs> uh, besides playing himself in a brief, brief walk-on in Dodgeball, that Ben Stiller thing. It wasn't until The Expendables 2, where a not bad Expendables film, actually, not as good as one, but, you know, 2 two was maligned by people like my co-host. But <laughs> I was going to say, I, I'm not saying nothing. <laughs> I, 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 I actually enjoyed two. I actually enjoyed all those Expendables pictures. But what's really fun is that, where the fuck are they? Bulgaria, Belgrade, someplace? And things look pretty dire for our team of testosterone-fueled he-men, and out of the smoke comes Chuck Norris (laughs) with the biggest fucking anti-tank gun, and it's like, they all, like, there's, like, a break-the-fourth-wall thing, like, they all acknowledge, they, you know, they call him by some name, whatever his name, the Lone Wolf, I guess. For Lone Wolf McQuaid. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, like, riffing on Lone Wolf McQuaid. McQuaid. Except it was a little shocking because Chuck is 79 right now, right? And this movie was 2012. And I hadn't seen him in quite some time. So I'm watching his Expendables movie in the theater and I said, oh my god, Chuck had a lot of work done on his face. And I was I was really surprised because I saw Botox. You know, Botox on the guy doesn't look good. <laughs> Botox on anybody doesn't look good. It doesn't look good on anybody we're talking about. <laughs> But it's like Chuck Norris, like, you know, our guy, you know? It's like, oh, shit. It's like that weird fish face look, like the face of Bo on Doctor Who. <laughs> yes, yes, very much. But it was nice to see him theatrically again. Like, hey, they gave him a nice nod. You know, it's nice. So it was nice to see, you know, Chuck comes to the rescue, like, oh, shit, fucking Chuck Norris. So that was nice. So 
as much as I know you don't like Expendables 2, but it was nice to go out on that. Otherwise, we just see Chuck selling exercise equipment on TV right now. <laughs> or years. weird statements. We don't want to, again, as we said, oh, we don't yeah. want to get into uh, stuff. Yeah, his Bible thumping, his uh, support of guns, his support of Trump. God knows. Uh, how but, could be? <laughs> yeah, but like I said, I, we don't know what's behind that, or the cause of that, or blah, blah, blah. But anyway. Yeah, because, I mean, despite all that crap that happened later, he still did some really, as far as I'm concerned, his first five or six Yes, yeah, his first five or six films are golden, you know. Yeah, we knocked some of his later ones, but we still enjoy, like, Missing in Action and Invasion USA for all its faults and a couple of his other films, too. You know, towards the end, he just kind of, unfortunately, his career took an upward trajectory and then a downward trajectory, and that's been a lot longer. <laughs> he did all his good work right up front, and then he's gone, but... You know, nonetheless, uh, the, like I said, I had posters of the guy on my wall. I looked up to him when I was young, which is around the time he was doing those films, though. I saw a lot of him in the theater. I mean, the guy was cool. I don't know what happened to him. You know, something must happen. He got dropped in his head or something. But, <laughs> but nonetheless. Oh, Chuck, we still love you, Chuck. Yeah, and he's become a meme. So anyway, you slice, you can at least take him as that joke. Like, Chuck Norris can chew nails and spin him out, and who the hell knows. So thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat with Chuck Norris. Next week, notable for playing Nebushi of likable everyman types, the former Elliot Goldstein was something of a unique type who could pull off comedy and serious melodrama equally believably. Born and raised in the heavily Italian immigrant neighborhood of Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, he spent about five years working in theater before being given his first film role. Interestingly, it took another five years before his defining turn in 60s sexual revolution dramedy Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, which followed by his part in yet another generation touchpoint, MASH, led to a memorable run of quirky films throughout the 70s that saw him becoming something of an ersatz sex symbol, believe it or not, alongside arguably similar, if lesser, types like Richard Benjamin and Alan Alda, with a propensity towards darker, more loaded, and nihilistic comedies, offset by cheery, lighthearted takes on heavier genres like war, crime, and noir. Gould straddled the middle ground, shattered by very few actors of his day, the sort who could and did darken a Disney film, but on the flip side, brighten up the grimace of scenarios. Staying active in more recent years with recurrent parts in much-beloved 80s drama ER, 90s yuppie Lodestone Friends, and the Ocean's Eleven series, and surviving not only a brief marriage to Bab Streisand, but two consecutive marriages to the same woman. Join us as we talk perhaps the unlikeliest of sex symbols and the most nihilistic yet amusing of every man, the inimitable Elliot Gould, only here on Weird Scenes. You did a good job with that, actually. That, that really nails him really good. You did good. Yeah, yeah. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician would like to join us on air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter, which is at weirdscenes1, or you can follow us direct at the downloadable site, which is uh, thirdeyescinema.podbean.com. We're also on iTunes, which, of course, is Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast, and if you're really particular, it's ID 55 Three four zero two zero four four. But just look us up under Third Eye Cinema Richards Podcast, and you should find us. So, uh, anything else you want to close out on? No, thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please uh, listen for Elliot Gould next. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.
every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you gotta have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you, only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the hated, the 
your career and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Hey. Hey, what's up? So how you doing after your little adventure this morning? Oh, <laughs> every day is an adventure with me. <laughs> Sounds like my life. Yeah, yeah, well, that's what we get. <laughs> I warned my wife before she came down here. I was like, you know, every day's going to be an adventure. I mean, it might not be a good adventure, but it's going to be an adventure. <laughs> I remind her all the time, like, you said you were okay with this. <laughs> I warned her. <laughs> oh, you mean come down or come down here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. From the great white north to us. <laughs> Have you ever been up there? Yes, nice. Yeah, we went up twice. We went up for our honeymoon. Uh, we did the cheesy old 60s style Niagara Falls honeymoon. Mm, and, I did that. Uh, yeah. Oh, it was great. I loved it up there. I mean, okay, yes, yeah, cheesy, but we had a lot of fun. You know what's really nice? By mm. the falls, the air right. is so fresh. I mean, that whole thing about, like, yeah. ions or whatever, it's really true. I mean, I could breathe so well there compared to down here with, you know, because we're all you know, over here by New York with all these valleys and smog and God knows what else. It's not like L.A. or anything, but it's still kind of nasty. And we get a lot of this humid thickness and crap still flowing around from 9-11 or whatever the hell else. And well, you know, I mean, you could drive for 20 minutes and get little better. True, but even if you go out to, like, say we went to Western PA one time to see the Polonias, right? That air was terrible. Even though they're out in the middle of the woods. It's just like, oh, jeez. Actually, my allergies are going nuts out there. I don't know what kind of trees they got or whatever. Oh, but, yeah. But, you know, you go up to Niagara Falls and you're by the falls and it's like, wow, this is really... I feel good, you know? That was nice. And then, of course, we went up to where she was uh, born and raised, if you will. That was nice, too, but in a different way. Uh, that was more for seeing her friends and things like that. But not the same way as Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls was really special. Yeah, it's really nice. I have a good memory of that. Despite the spot we rented out had a, a toilet that went awry and it was <laughs> in the middle of the night, you know, I'm like, knocking on the door of the guy who owns the space. I'm like, hey, man, you know, the board. They, they had some uniquely Niagara Falls-y things, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, yeah, no, I had a good memory of that one. That was marriage number one, two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you see Dark Phoenix yet? No, and I see it got literally trashed. Yes. Uh, it's got like a 10% or something on one of those uh, review I, sites. I... I enjoyed the, uh, was it Days of Future Past, the, the reboot? They oh, did. that was fine, yeah. The original and, uh, one, the original one we both loved, we mentioned that in a previous show. It's first class, that was it. Days of Future first Past class. was still pretty good. Still and then after good. that, Apocalypse was abominable, so this can't be worse than Apocalypse. <laughs> well, the Apocalypse, Apocalypse, well, they, I don't know what happened with that one. It was a mess. I watched that, and yeah. like, you know, how'd you guys screw this up? I think they should let it go. Who did first class? I think it was Matthew Vaughn. Of all people, and yeah. you know, good job. You know, actually, you know, he's he's turned into a really interesting filmmaker. You know, everybody can't hit it out of the park all the time, but even when he doesn't, you know, I like his stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing. It's funny. I have a friend who is a Prague guy, but he goes. He's retired now, so he goes to movies all the day. He'll go into the city. He lives in Long Island. He spent all day, one or two days a week seeing three or four pictures. Wow. And, you know, hey, more power to you, right? You know, what are you going to do? You love doing that too? Go ahead. Sure. But I said, so you can see Godzilla? 
And he's like, oh, no, Rotten Tomato score. I said, look, stop being stupid about this. You can't always do that because you have to let the movie, if you like it, you like it. If you don't like it, if you enjoy it, it's one thing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah, I disagree with main reviewers all the time. Yeah, but as I was saying, not just Rotten Tomatoes, I mean, as everybody was saying, like, Dark Phoenix is like, wow. Yeah. But, and that, you know, I, it's, I'll see it eventually, but I'm like, I still want to see Godzilla in the theater. I still oh, want to see John Wick 3, which I really enjoyed the first two. They're, they're really entertaining. Godzilla, the trailer was just like, both of my, my wife looked at me, I looked at her, somebody offered us free tickets, she had passes, and we're like, nah. <laughs> she couldn't find anybody to give them to. That's how bad the Well, you didn't give them to me. You should have sent them to me. <laughs> I don't know. If she still got them, but I don't think so. I think she gave them to somebody. Uh, that's all right. Well, I like Kong Scott Skull Island. I, I enjoyed that, too. So, that was fun. We did see Endgame. I don't know that's a story in itself. One of these days, we'll have to talk about that in Captain Marvel. <laughs> well, see, I saw you like more than, than half. So oh, that's yeah. Good. No, it was definitely, in terms of Avengers films, which is a really low bar when it comes to Marvel films, it was the best one. But, yeah, yeah I mean, it still kind of fell apart at the end there. Not the very end, but that whole section when they went into, oh, look, let's bring him back from the past. And with this big hour-long CG fight, oh, my God, just chop that entire thing out. It's unnecessary. It was boring. Well, well I, think, I think the thing wasn't they didn't want to do that. You know, they didn't want to bring him back. But you got you found out. So... Yeah, no. but even so, it was just pointless. Was like, that, that the whole thing should have been dropped. That's it. Okay, we're in the past. We're, we took care of things. Done. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about this uh, at, at some point. We'll, we'll do a show like Yeah, when we get some more movies out, because you know, by now we've already... Well, we will have three movies once we see Dark Phoenix. Yeah, I... I you know my biggest problem with Endgame? Mm-hmm. Which is everybody seems to disagree with me on this one, and you might too. So, Steve Rogers makes this decision, right. okay? And, um... Okay, but he's the one guy. He's the he, he survived number one, which is like phenomenal. You know, like these guys who had this incredible abilities passed away and stuff yeah. and got fucked up. Not as many as you thought, though, which is really strange. Not as many as you thought, considering the stuff going on in this film. I mean, when those hordes—I mean, we're talking hordes of killer creatures, whatever they were. But he makes this decision. Okay, I can see this. But the problem I had with that was that he's such a great guy, a great character. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, this is like, this role is for this guy. He, you know, he really knows how to do it. You know, it's like, wow, Chris Evans wasn't in this. I couldn't see somebody else really pulling us off. Uh, But I like what they did with it. I was totally yeah. expecting them to give it to that one jerk, and like, no, they did what you wouldn't expect. And I'm like, okay, I'm good with that. And my wife said the same thing. I was like, oh yeah, I was just surprised at that. That was good. Well, see, my thing is, okay, so he did that, right? It's no, it's not. No, it's not that. It's not what you think it is. It's not who we gave the shield to. Who he says you're Captain America. I'm fine with that. I don't care. You know, as a, as opposed to it going to Bucky, I would expect he would give it to Bucky. But all right, I'm fine with that. No, that's not what I'm what I'm talking about. So he went back to whenever to spend the rest of his life with what's her name, who yeah. eventually died. We have to figure out. Yeah. So what did he do? So he's gonna let. Oh, I see what you're saying. It changes the entire retcon of history. Yeah. That's yes. True. That's true. It, if you're gonna look at it that way, it would fuck the entire thing up, the entire Marvel universe as we know it. <laughs> right. Like so. So like. Yeah. So Steve is gonna sit down while Vietnam takes place, while Korea takes place. 
he's well, gonna be like the restless an armchair politician like grousing about like damn I yeah. wish I could do something but you know no, I got no power don't worry about I'm gonna stay home and fuck my wife okay well you know I can hear well, that but <laughs> well he has power I mean he's just not gonna do anything about it probably because he fears if he does he'll be thrown back into it or you know reunite mm-hmm. history or whatever else but yeah it's true I think that's problematic but I guess I guess in a way that was well written and I I was like oh Tony Stark okay that was interesting the way they did that. But see, the thing is, behind the scenes, we know that all these guys that were the major players for all these years, their contracts were up. So I figured, okay, <laughs> they're going to kill them all off, so what? And then they kill off a couple of them and give him a happy ending of sorts. Then other ones are still sitting there. And we have a dead person now. We saw her dead. We know she's dead. And yet they're giving her a movie on the upcoming Slave? What? Yeah, you know, somebody said, oh, it's going to take prior, previous, and it's a previous to what, all these pictures for the last 10 years? Yeah. She's getting older. I can't see how they're getting away with that. Uh-huh, exactly. So, I, I think something will be up. You know, they did set Captain Marvel in the 90s, and I, even though I didn't feel very 90s, I understand that that worked pretty well. I actually really liked that movie, to my surprise, especially after the trailer was so horrible. But, you know, I don't think it's going to work in this case. That just seems too much of a, a long jump, if you will. Especially with her, like say, getting old and everything else. You know what I liked, surprisingly, was it was really long, but I didn't feel it. Because I really didn't care for the trailer. It was Aquaman. Oh, you actually saw that? <laughs> I wow. did. I, I saw it 4K, because they, they were streaming at 4K for 5 bucks, And I said, well, you know what? I don't want to buy the Blu-ray for like 30 bucks, And I'll invest $5 and, and watch this one time on, on Verizon, you know? Because mm. it was like one of their 4K things. And it was very entertaining. And what was most interesting to me was that it's it got kind of gruesome. Part of the way through, it was like they were throwing in... Well, because, you know, James Wan is like a horror guy anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So they definitely had some horror touches. And I said, ooh, this is like a really good... This is kind of like not superhero, it's just this kind of like fucking scary stuff going on here. It was it was very entertaining. I gave it props for that. What I found weird was so Patrick Wilson, I think that's his name, who was in Watchmen. Oh, I film I love. I'm sorry, I love that movie. Yeah, he's in Watchmen. That's how many years ago, you know? Jeez, and yeah. <laughs> and he he looks younger now. So I'm thinking, did they CGI this guy? What did they do? Because it didn't look like it. It's just one of the oddest things in this. It's like he's. He's Aquaman's brother, and he's the chief villain. And, and I'm like, how does this guy look younger than everybody in this picture? And what's her name has gotten some bad Botox treatment. Uh, Nicole Kidman. Oh, jeez, yeah. Yeah, she plays his mom, and, and I was like, ooh, what you do there, girl? <laughs> <laughs> no, because it looked, it looked like somebody who drank like a half a gallon of semen. She got puppy cheeks. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's really weird. Is she looking like Joe Shishido? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I, 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 I tell you this though. Uh, I mean, if you you happen to see it, yeah, it's 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 fun, and it, and, it, and it, I, yeah, I'll put it this way: it's without no expectations, much better than the trailer. And Tamora Morrison, you know, um, I think it's his name. That Australian guy was big like twenty years ago. He has a really nice, juicy part. Yeah, he was like one of those Australian guys from the from the from the old days. You know, the post Mel Gibson second mm-hmm. Australian wave. And um, Brian James and yeah, those people. Yeah, uh, right. And and it was nice that they CGI'd him to make him look uh, thirty years younger. 
and then you see him, you know, at his age now. So it was a nice part. And I said, you know, it's nice they gave the guy like this something. Because he's a good actor. You know, ni- you know nice. To- oh, and Dolph. Dolph Lundgren's in this. Really? He has uh, the best part he has in 25 years. Bar none. I'm shocked at that. I didn't even know really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I thought he was going to be in it for five minutes. He's in most of the movie. Wow. And he's enjoying himself. And he's, 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 I'll tell you, you the takeaway from this was like, nice role for Dolph. Nice to see this other guy. What's his name? Isn't bad at all in the, in the lead role. You know, it's his issues. <laughs> but, <laughs> because, he's like a wrestler, you know, that guy. He's like, uh, what, yeah. who's that, Roman Reigns? Oh, there he is. <laughs> ah, he's like a Game of Thrones guy. I, I don't even watch that either. But nah, uh, but he's Swaggers. And, you know, he's, he's, he's like the rock right here. Less muscles. Yeah. <laughs> One episode of Games of Thrones was enough for me. That first episode was like, oh my god. This is what people are getting excited about? Fuck this. (laughs) You know, when people try to sell it to me, it's like, and the way they try to sell it to me is like, they don't really know me. They're just misjudging me. Oh, there's lots of rapes and torture. Dude. (laughs) I didn't get that. I I got, oh, you'd love it. There's lots of nudity in there. And it's like D&D kind of stuff. I'm like, yeah, well, I wasn't too impressed with that first episode. <laughs> well, no, my thing is, no, you, it, that's one of the things I don't like about erotica. I don't like rape and force, and that, that actually well, turns me off. That's the very first episode. That's what they did. They pulled that with the one girl that it comes to, uh, mother or whatever the fuck, yeah. and he gets thrown off with that guy that's supposed to be Arabic. He looks like Pan or something, and that's the implication. He's like some brutal guy going to rape her. I'm like, this is something I want to watch for four or five years? Fuck this. <laughs> yeah, no, and exactly. It's like, no, so this is just one of the things where if I'm watching, like, whether it's a skin flick or whatever, I don't, I will turn it off, you know? I don't go that far, but yeah, it's uncomfortable. I'm not a fan. <laughs> I'm not a fan. No, I, I sit through all kinds of exploitation, as long as it's the vintage stuff, you know, 70s, 80s. No, no, vintage, you know, some of it's good. Well, you know, you remember, uh, what was that thing? Can't uh, There's some nasty stuff out there, but oh yeah, I mean even the we talked about the Nazi exploitation films. That's that's yeah. pretty nasty shit. But you know, I'll sit through that. I'm like, okay, well, I don't want to see that one again, or I like this about it. Forget about this section. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. So you know, I was passing by the other day. Somebody was watching us. Oh, there's dragons. Now that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So do you want to test this so we can get rolling? Sounds good.